Thanks for listening. The following is an audio presentation from High Country Christian Church. For more information, please visit www.highcountrychristian.com. We are teaching through the book of Hebrews this summer, and I've told you since the very beginning, it's one of, the, it's one of these challenging type of series for me to, to teach. It's, it's a very difficult or very daunting challenge for me because if I had my druthers, I'd take 30 sessions on this book, and we'd go verse by verse and line by line, but there's just not enough time for that. You can't, there's not 30 Sundays in a summer, is there? No, we could take, we could take, honestly, we could take an entire year on the book of Hebrews, and when I got done, I'd feel like we hadn't even scratched the surface. But we've got other things to teach on for the rest of the year, so we're, we're getting this into about eight weeks. So we've had to kind of, we, we've had to kind of skim across the top and cherry pick the, the high points of the book. And, and the thing that we've said from the beginning is that Jesus, the purpose of this book, the way that it's written is to communicate to the church and to communicate to these Jewish believers that it was written to that Jesus is better than all of the tenets of Judaism. All of the types and symbols and shadows in Judaism were all pointed at Jesus. In fact, Paul makes the argument in the book of Galatians that it was the law of Moses, that the job of the law of Moses was to point us to Christ. He says that the law was like a school teacher, a tutor, to point us to Jesus. So anytime we see, you know, as we go through the Old Testament, which by the way, you need to appreciate and enjoy your Old Testament. Sometimes as New Covenant Christians, we get sort of offended at the Old Testament. We don't feel like we have time for that. At least let me stay in Romans and we'll leave Leviticus where it is, you know. But no, we should enjoy the Old Testament because the Bible said it was written as an example to us. There's so much depth. There's such, it's such a a beautiful story, the Old Testament, and all of it, 100% of it points to Jesus. Like one of my favorite Bible teachers said, he said, I can show you Jesus on every page of the Bible, even in the law. Isn't that amazing? And so, so the, the writer of Hebrews now is trying to get these Hebrew believers to disconnect themselves from the tenets of Judaism and fully embrace their faith in Jesus. These guys were under great persecution. This was the early first century, and there was all kinds of things going on in their lives, and they were starting to doubt whether or not the Jesus that they put trust in was in fact the right Messiah. Did we believe the right one? This is, this is what the, the Jews of that time were dealing with. And so the writer here is, is saying to them, yes, yes, you believed in Jesus. He's better than, than the bulls and the goats. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the tabernacle. He's better than all of these things. Now, we said at the beginning that Jesus is better and he is God's big reveal. You remember that? I use the analogy of, of Chip and Joanna Gaines. If you watch HGTV and you see that when they redo a house, at the end of the episode, they do a big reveal. They pull, they pull the big sign away and you see what's behind it. And Jesus is God's big reveal. Everything that God set up, everything that he ordained, everything that he established in this creation, the purpose of it all was to reveal his son. Amen. Why did God say, let there be light? 
Why did he breathe his breath into Adam? Why did he create the universe? So that he could have somebody to reveal his son to. It's a glorious narrative. It begins in Genesis and it concludes in eternity. Jesus is God's big reveal. Now, we said that is the, that's the beginning, the, you know, in, in, in chapter one, about the first four verses of chapter one, that is the stage that's being set. That's what the writer of Hebrews is communicating, that it's all about Jesus. And from there, for the last three weeks, we should now start to see the thread that the writer is weaving. First, he talks about Jesus and his supremacy. Then he begins to talk about angels and Moses and talking about how they were, stu- they were um, servants. And Jesus was greater than the angels and he's greater than Moses because Jesus was a son, not a servant. He says that sonship is greater than servanthood. Do you remember why? Why is sonship greater than servanthood? Because a son has an inheritance and a servant does not. Right, And so then he, he moves on from that and he enters into talking about the rest of God. How faith produces within us a rest when you understand that you are a son and not a servant. Now it doesn't mean that you don't serve God, but it means that you serve God from a higher place. Amen. You serve God as a son. As a matter of fact, we said this in that message on sonship versus servanthood in week two. We, we said that sonship shouldn't diminish your service, it should actually increase it. Jesus came as the son of God, yet he said himself, I did not come to be served, but to serve. If there was anybody who deserved to be served, it was the king of kings, right? But what did he do? He got down on his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. You see, sonship doesn't negate servanthood, but it's important for us to understand that as sons, we have something that we never had as servants. We have an inheritance. We inherit, we're joint heirs, Romans says, with Christ Jesus. Glory to God. You know that he has, he has inherited everything. Jesus stood up, <laughs> glory to God, and this is not my message. Jesus stood up in Matthew 28, 18, and he said, all authority in all of heaven and earth has been given unto me. Did you know that you are a joint heir of that authority? You get to co-labor with Jesus. He's your big brother, and you're standing with him arm in arm, fulfilling the call that he's put on your life. And you get to do it with his authority that he delegated to you because you're a joint heir. That's better than servanthood, baby. Amen. Then we said that uh, servanthood gets us into this place called rest where we stop trying to do the thing that God already did. Remember, he said that he rested from his work. In chapter four, verse 10, it said that we rest from our work in the same way that God rested from his work, meaning this, we don't try to do what God has already done. If he rested, why would I try? If he, if he did everything that was necessary and he became, you know, he entered into a place of rest and he stopped working, why would I try to do something he's already completed? Why would I try to do something he's resting from? Jesus already died on the cross. He's not going to do it again. And when he did it, when he died on the cross, it was so effective that you can't add to it. So stop trying. Amen. Don't try to add to something that Jesus already completed. When he hung on the cross, he said, it's finished. Redemption was paid for. Nothing that you and I can do can add any merit to what Jesus has already done. So we rest from our labor. I'm not trying to labor to be good enough. 
Amen. I'm not trying to do good works so that my works are acceptable and God will say, okay, yes, I accept you. Salvation applies to you. No, no, no. Jesus already did all the work. Amen. Faith alone in Christ alone, in his work, which was sufficient. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. Amen. So now we enter into this next phase and, and really, it would take us through like four chapters. So we're, we're going to talk about Jesus as the high priest. So we already found out that he's better as a son. He's better as, uh, excuse me, as a son rather than a servant. Rest is better than dead works. And faith is what enters us into the rest. Faith in the word of God, verse 12 that brings us into rest. Now, we're gonna find out that Jesus is a better high priest than the high priests of the law. So what I want us to read is three scriptures from Hebrews chapter four, beginning in verse 14 and down through verse 16. I, what, what is conveyed in these three verses is a snapshot of what the writer it goes on to say at length in the next four chapters. So everything that he says in the next four chapters, he actually sums it up in verse 14, 15, and 16 at the very beginning. So that's why we're gonna take this as our text today. Hebrews chapter 14. Oh, you know what we forgot to do? Forgot to make our confession of faith. Oh, goodness, what am I doing getting ahead of myself? Let's say this out loud together. You can read it on the screen. Say it with faith. Thank you, Father, that today... The eyes of my heart see you. The ears of my heart hear you. My heart and mind perceive and understand your word and your will. Today I am growing in the things of God. Amen. We believe that. Thank you, Father, for your blessing upon your word today. Amen. So let's begin reading verse 14 of chapter 4. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore... Come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 16 may be one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. What an amazing promise that you and I have been given access to the throne of grace. The very seat of God's grace, we've been given access into it. Amen. So what, what is he describing here in verse 14 as he begins to talk about Jesus as a high priest? There are several things from this verse that pop out at me, and um, I want to actually look at it in reverse. So, so the last phrase of verse 14 says, let us hold fast our confession. The word hold fast means in the Greek to really grab a hold of something with the intent of holding on to it and never letting go of it. Okay, so this, this is a kind of a permanent type word. When you, you hold fast to something and no matter what comes, it's not gonna be dislodged from your grip. 
That's what the writer of Hebrews is teaching these, these Jewish believers, that it becomes very important as you progress with God to hold fast and to not let go of the confession that you made of Jesus as Lord. Did you know that you and I will face temptation from now until the end of our lives, not just to deny Christ, but to deny the tenets of his word? And just about the time that you make a commitment for anything in the kingdom of God, rest assured the devil's going to be there to try to snatch it out of your hand, right? Anybody ever done this? You make a commitment to up your quiet time, right? right? Anybody ever done anything like this? You that, praise God, starting Monday morning, 5.30 a.m. I'm going for a whole hour. I'm going to pray. I'm going to worship. Oh, it's going to be so good. You get, your, you get your Bible and your devotional. You lay them out on the desk or the table, and you say, this is it. I'm going all the way with God. Then Sunday night, you watch movies till 2 in the morning. And 5.30 gets there real fast. And all of a sudden, we turn loose of what commitment we've made. You know, the devil, again, I said it at the beginning of the service, the enemy hates the idea of you getting the word in you. Because when God puts his word in your life, you become an unstoppable force to the devil. And if, if you can get to the place, and if I can get to the place where we make a decision and a commitment to hold fast to the truth we see in his word, then things really get sketchy for the enemy. That's when he really starts to lose the battle for your life. Amen. So the writer of Hebrews is encouraging these folks, don't turn loose of the confession that Jesus is your Lord. Don't turn loose. When, man, when you find healing in the Bible and it becomes a revelation to you, don't let anybody convince you otherwise. When you find the, you know, a truth from God's word, don't let anybody rob you of it. Hold fast to your confession. Then he says, again, reading this kind of in reverse just for the sake of teaching it to you, he talks about Jesus being the high priest who has passed through the heavens. You see that? Passed through the heavens. What does that mean? That's kind of a, you know, to us as, as people who are not first century Jews, but rather 21st century Americans, that phrase or that statement doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot to us. But it would have meant a tremendous amount to the people that it was written to. What does he talk about when he says passing through the heavens? We need to pay attention to this phrase because it becomes very important. Now I'm gonna explain what that means here in just a second. Look finally at the first line. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. The word great here in the Greek is the word megas. We get the word mega from it. It's a pretty easy one to figure out, right? I love that. I love that the writer of Hebrews says, seeing then that we have a mega high priest. Jesus is not some rinky-dink sideshow. He's the main event. He's the mega high priest. There was a lot of high priests that came before him. There was high priests that came after him. But nobody measured up to the high priest that Jesus was. He's the mega high priest. Now, you're going to see that as we begin to unpack this. What does he say, what does he mean when he talks about Jesus doing the high priestly duties and passing through the heavens? What does that relate to in the law? Well, it relates to the day of atonement. Now, there was other things that the high priest did throughout the whole calendar year. The high priest uh, in ancient Israel 
the law of Moses stipulates that there was a person who was to be consecrated to the position of high priest. This person was chosen from among the priests who served in the temple, and they were from the tribe of Levi. Matter of fact, there's an entire book in the Old Testament dedicated to priestly service, and it's called Leviticus, because Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, right? Y'all remember this? Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and, the, and those 12 sons became the 12 different tribes of Israel. And Levi was the son from whom his line, his lineage, all the priests came out of the house of Levi and the tribe of Levi. So that's why you have Leviticus, which talks all about the priestly service in, uh, in the Old Covenant. So these priests came out of the tribe of Levi, and there was chosen and consecrated from them a high priest. This high priest possessed great political and religious authority and also had the highest duties and responsibilities in the temple. He was the boss of the country for a long time. I mean, eventually Israel started having kings again, or Israel started having kings, and once they had kings, the authority shifted a little bit. Before, when the law first came, the priests, they were the top dog, man, and the high priest was the most important guy in the country. Because the high priest was the one who dictated whether or not your sins were going to be forgiven this year. And there was this day called the Day of Atonement. Today it's celebrated as Yom Kippur. You've probably seen that on a calendar and wonder what it was. It's the Day of Atonement. It comes at the end of a 10-day time of, of consecration and repentance in the Jewish calendar. And it's the Day of Atonement. And on this day of atonement, the priest performed a special offering on behalf of the people. Now, I want to take you through that special offering, okay? I want to take you through what Yom Kippur is all about. This high priest, again, he, he had daily things that he did in the temple every single day. But there was this special Yom Kippur day that came up, and his duties on that day were different. Now, if you remember... If you've ever been taught about the tabernacle and the temple, then some of this would be reviewed to you. But for those who have not, let me describe the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Covenant. Um, the, the, the tabernacle had three specific areas. It was a big, giant rectangle of a building. And the, it, 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 it was like, y'all ever seen those Russian dolls? Where they, you know, one fits inside the other? That's kind of what the tabernacle was like. There was three of them. And, and you, you started in the outer court, and then you went into the inner court, and then inside the inner court was a place called the Holy of Holies. And the place called the Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant rested. Okay? And the Ark of the Covenant was the sign that God was with his people. When they had the Ark of the Covenant in their possession, God was with them, and nobody could touch them. Nobody could stop them. They would send the Ark of the Covenant into battle ahead of the armies, and they would destroy entire armies that they had no business beating, but because God's presence was with them, because his covenant was with him, and this physical sign of his covenant called the Ark of the Covenant, because that was with the nation, the nation prospered, the nation grew, the nation it was victorious in battle, all these things. Now, you all remember uh, Indiana Jones? You've seen the Ark of the Covenant before? You remember that seat that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant where the two cherubim, you all remember Indiana Jones, right? And their wings are pointing at each other. 
That's actually a very accurate, for once in, in their life, Hollywood got something right. It's an extremely accurate display of what the Ark of the Covenant looked like. And there was this lid that stood on top or sat on top of that Ark and it was all covered in gold and very ornate and beautiful. And only the priests could touch this box. Only the priests could get close. Matter of fact, only the high priest could go and look at it once per year. And that was during the Day of Atonement. And so what would happen was in the Holy of Holies, this Ark of the Covenant was there. On top is this giant gold lid with these two angels, two cherubs on it. And in the middle is what the, the Hebrews would call the Ruach HaKodesh, which was the glory of God, the holy presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God rested. And it looked like, uh, from what I've read, it looked like a blue flame of the glory of God. That was his very presence amongst his people. And you couldn't look at it. You couldn't touch it. You couldn't get close. If you got close, if you were to somehow penetrate the Holy of Holies and you came in contact with God's presence, you would die because sin made you unclean. And so when you came in contact with the glory of God, one of those two things has got to give. And it ain't going to be God's glory, right? So the glory of God would literally kill a person if they got too close to it. This is amazing. This is beautiful typology because what happens in the new covenant is that blue flame that used to live on top of that box lives in you. Amen. The very same Holy Ghost, the very same power, the very same life, the very same glory that used to dwell only in that little tiny room called the Holy of Holies, now it lives in each and every one of us. The thing that the high priest only got to glimpse once per year for a moment lives in you all the time. It's far better to be a Christian. Amen? Now, you got the temple, everybody understand? You got the outer court, the inner court, and the holy of holies. Now, once per year, the high priest had this job on the day of atonement of going into the holy of holies and atoning for the sins of the entire nation. He atoned. The word atone means to cover over. So basically what happened once a year was God had a Band-Aid ready to cover sin. God had a Band-Aid ready to deal with the sins of his people. One of the things that makes Jesus so much better as a high priest and as a better sacrifice was that he doesn't have to continually offer himself up. His, his work was so good, it was so effective that he did it once for all time. Now that's coming in future chapters. I can't get ahead of myself as much as I want to. But Jesus is better because he did this once. So this Day of Atonement happened every year, and the priests had a very specific routine. Here's the routine. He brought with him one bull and two goats. Now, I have 11 chickens at my house. It's difficult to get one chicken to do what I want it to do. It's very difficult. It's nigh on impossible to get one chicken to do what I want it to do. I can only imagine the struggle of getting one bull and two goats to go where you want them to go right? The bull was for the tabernacle and for the priesthood. So he had that giant bull and the blood from that bull was for him and for his other fellow priests. That was going to cover them. 
The two goats were for the sins of the people. Now, one goat was to take the sins on itself and then be banished into the wilderness. The other goat, the reason that goat was there, and they used to name this second goat Ladonai, which means to the Lord. This second goat, its whole purpose was to die and give up its blood. So, so you, you have this first goat who... His whole job, can you imagine this poor goat? His whole job was to take the sins of the people and then be banished into the wilderness to die out there somewhere. So what the priest would do, he would go through the veil into the Holy of Holies, into the place of God's glory, having just killed that second goat and has collected all the blood from that second goat And now he goes into the tabernacle, or excuse me, into the Holy of Holies, into the place of God's glory. Can you imagine the scene? He walks through a curtain. Now the Bible says the curtain was so heavy and so thick and so strong that you could have bulls going in opposite directions which could not pull it apart. The fabric of it was woven almost a foot thick. Can you imagine having a foot thick blanket? That's intense, right? That's a, that's a thick piece of fabric. So he would go through this curtain, this veil, and can you imagine walking into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, seeing the mercy seat, seeing the Ark of the Covenant? He only gets to do this once per year. And he's got with him the blood of this second goat, the one that had been, the one that had been killed, And his job is to take the blood from that sacrificial animal and sprinkle it onto the Ark of the Covenant, onto the mercy seat of God. So there had to be blood there in order for the sins of God's people to be atoned and to be covered. I wrote this in my notes. As long as there is blood on the mercy seat, sin was forgiven for that year for that year, just for one year. Remember, he's got to do this again next year. Got to get two more goats and another bull. Some other poor heifer is going to, you know, going to have to give his life. He sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. Secondly, he would then, after he did that, after he came out, he would place his hand on on the first goat, and he would transmit, he would, he would, you know, declare and confess the sins of the entire nation and, and you know, uh, metaphorically transfer all of the sins of an entire nation onto this little goat and cast him out into the wilderness. I was reading that they actually tied a, a scarlet ribbon around the goat and sent him out so that everybody knew if you bumped into the goat in the wilderness, you knew Stay away. This is an unclean goat. You see, the vessel of sacrifice became unclean because it took on the sins of the entire nation. Are you following me so far? Okay, good. He placed his hands on the head of that other goat and passed the sins of the nation onto it. Then he banished the goat into the wilderness. As he did this, he confessed the sins of the people. Now, finally, this was something I didn't know until I studied this out. The final part of this step was unbeknownst to me. But the, the, the whole process was not complete until afterward the robe of the 
high priest was covered in the blood of these animals. Only once his cloak, once his ceremonial robe was covered in blood, only then had God accepted the sacrifice. Now this is amazing. You'll see why in just a few moments. Only then, when his robe was covered in blood, was the process complete and atonement had been made and the sacrifice had been accepted. Now, you got a picture of the high priest, you got a picture of the day of atonement. Why is Jesus better? Because he's the mega high priest. He passed through the heavens. He didn't go through the earthly tabernacle, but he went through the heavenly tabernacle. You see, the temple that was here on the earth is a copy of the real one that exists eternally in heaven. In heavenly places, there's a temple, and it looks just like the one on earth. Actually, the one on earth just looks, looks just like it. And there's a mercy seat in heaven that the one on earth couldn't even compare to. And there's a holy place, there's a holy of holies in heaven. And on that holy of holies and on that mercy seat, there's blood. I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus, why is Jesus a better high priest? Why is he the mega high priest? It's because he fulfilled all the roles in the story that I just gave you. He's the high priest. He's the bull. He's the first goat. He's the second goat. Let me take you through this. Jesus filled all of these roles. He was the first goat. You remember the first goat? He was the goat whose only job it was to die and give up his blood. Jesus... The Bible says he was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. See, now, now that scripture makes a little more sense to you than it did before. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus is God's big reveal. He's the one that this is all about. God decided before he said, let there be light, that Jesus was going to be the first goat. Now, those of you who follow sports, the goat analogy stands for greatest of all time. Jesus is the goat. Jesus is the greatest of all time. Everybody talking about LeBron James and whether or not he's the goat. Jesus is the goat. Okay? Jesus is the goat. He's the first goat, the second goat, the bull, and the high priest. And he's the altar, and he's the tabernacle, and he's the real version of the Ark of the Covenant. He's everything, baby. Glory to God. He was the first goat. His blood was shed. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, says this. It says, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You see, sin cannot be dealt with unless blood is shed. Now, why is that? Because sin demands this, a life for a life. Sin demands a life for a life. If you're going to deal with sin, something has to die. Now, God didn't want his people to die, so he instituted this Band-Aid called the Day of Atonement. Right? You following me? The Bible says that in the life, or excuse me, that in the blood is the life. You can go read about that in the book of Leviticus. The blood is what represents life. 
So Jesus, when he went in as the sacrificial lamb, giving it his blood, he was giving his life in exchange for your life. A life for a life, blood for blood. This is why the blood is so significant. Because wherever there's blood, there's life. Blood represents life. You got it? So Jesus now goes in as the first goat. His blood is shed on our behalf. His life is given on our behalf. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. You got to have the first goat. But the first goat and the second goat can't be the same goat. You know why? Because the second goat has to become unclean. The first goat has to be perfect. He, his blood's got to be undefiled. When he's killed, that's why the, that's why the uh, high priest did that goat first and cut the blood open and took, you know, took, cut the throat and took the blood and put it on the mercy seat. That had to happen first because his blood was to be pure. The second goat, his job was to receive all the sins of the nation. Jesus was the first goat. He gave his blood. Andy was the second goat. He bore our sin. He bore it all. And then he was cast into outer darkness. Think about what happened. Why do you think, why do you think Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because in that moment he became the second goat. He received all of the sin of the human race for all of time. His relationship with his father at that moment was severed. Why did he cry out, why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time in eternity, he felt separate from his father. It's amazing. He wasn't just the first goat. He didn't just give his blood and just give his life. He also bore every bit of junk from the human race. Look at it in Isaiah 53. This is amazing. Isaiah 53 verse 4. says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Go to verse five. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the penalty that was to be paid for our peace was laid upon him and by his stripes we're healed. When Jesus hung on the cross, God was taking his hand and putting it on the son of his head and putting all the sin onto his son. That's why the Bible says it pleased him to bruise his son. In that moment when Jesus hung on the cross, he was bearing all of the sin, all of the sickness, all of the disease, all of the despair, death, and all of his friends were taking residence in Jesus at that moment. That's why Galatians 3 says he became a curse for us. He was the first goat his blood was shed. He was the second goat. He bore the sin. Now, watch this. What happened to that second goat after, after the high priest laid his hand on him? What happened to him? He was cast out into the wilderness, right? Jesus went to hell for you for three days. Do you know that? Do you know that after he shed his blood, after he took all your sin, he went ahead into the wilderness for you and went into hell for you for three days? You don't have to go to hell because Jesus already went there. And do you know what he did while he was there? He dumped your sin and rose. 
He took your sin and he took it with him, on him, bore it, took it, became the curse, went into hell for three days, and before he came out, he left the sin there. Glory to God. And he rose triumphantly over death. Glory to God. He, he was the second goat. He went into the wilderness for you. This is why he's so much better. This is why he's the mega high priest. Now, he was the first goat, the second goat. He went into hell. He left the sin in hell, and he rose again as the high priest. What did he do? He took into heaven's holy of holies, he took his own blood. Follow me, guys. He took his own blood. When he went into eternity, when he rose up from the grave triumphant, he took his own blood and he sprinkled it on heaven's mercy seat. You know what's so significant about that? He did it in eternity, meaning it was timeless. It was not bound by time. When Jesus rose triumphant from the grave, the first thing he did was to go, you remember he meets Mary in the garden? And what does he say to Mary? He says, Mary, don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my father and your father. What was he doing? He was stopping to say hi to Mary on his way to the throne of grace. He was stopping to say hello on his way to take his own blood into eternity and forever and ever, once and for all, scatter his blood on heaven's eternal mercy seat. And remember what I said, if there's blood on the mercy seat, there's forgiveness of sins. As long as there's blood, there's forgiveness. And what's amazing is that this high priest had to do it every single year because that blood wore out. That blood dried up. That blood got crusty and it decayed. But for now until eternity, there is blood on heaven's mercy seat and there is eternal forgiveness for all of sin. Glory to God. Jesus was the first goat. He was the second goat. He was the high priest. He gave his own blood. And then, remember what I said, makes the, makes the, the whole thing active. Remember what I said is the last piece of the pie? The last piece of the puzzle, excuse me thinking about food. <laughs> the last piece of the puzzle before this day of atonement can be complete, what's the last thing that has to happen? His robe has to become covered in blood. Go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, wait till you read this. This will blow your head. <laughs> Revelation 19, verse 13, or verse 11. This is amazing. John is saying, this is the end of the book, guys. This is the very end. John is saying, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. I gotta get through this without crying. He who sat on him was called faithful and true. He's the mega high priest, people. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except for him. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Do you realize that that verse tells you that God accepted the sacrifice of his son? That verse tells you that forever there's blood on heaven's mercy seat. 
And you and I are perpetually, for all of eternity, forgiven of the weight and the gravity of our sin. I'm no longer a sinner. I'm a saint because of what Jesus did. I'm not a sinner saved by grace. No, I've been saved by grace. My sin's been eradicated. What used to be a band-aid in the day of atonement is now a forever dealing with end of the story sin has been crushed it used to be just a band-aid it had to happen once every year but now because Jesus was effective for all of eternity you and I are free from sin and we have a new identity in Christ we're a son not just a servant Look what he keeps going. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood. I never saw that before. I never realized the significance of that statement. His name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, you and I are clothed the way he's clothed, white and clean, follow him on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that's the word of God that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. Boy, I tell you, in the end, you want to be on the right team. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you ever wondered whether or not Jesus was enough, if you ever wondered whether or not he was beneficial, if you ever wondered whether or not he did an adequate job, just read the end of the book. He's king of kings, he's lord of lords, he's covered in his own blood, and he forever is the mediator between you and God. He created a new covenant so firmly established that nothing you or I do can undo it. The veil in the temple was torn when he died, and now the Holy of Holies is accessible. Now the Holy of Holies lives in you. It's not a, it's not a tabernacle made with hands. It's not a box that we approach once a year and ask forgiveness. There's, there's not a bunch of religious works that goes with this. I believe I receive you know, my salvation, my healing, my peace, my joy through what Jesus did. He's got a robe covered in blood. There's eternal blood on heaven. Do you realize that when you and I get to heaven, we're gonna be able to go look at heaven's mercy seat and see his blood on it? And it's not gonna be dry, crusty blood. The Bible says he ever lives to make intercession. That blood is still alive. That blood on heaven's mercy seat. The Bible says the blood of Jesus speaks better things than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus cries out mercy for all, God, get this, for all of eternity, his blood, which is still alive on heaven's mercy seat, is crying out mercy on your behalf. Every time God looks at the mercy seat, he sees the mercy blood of Jesus' sacrifice. And then when he looks at you, he sees that same blood on you. He sees that same blood having given you a brand new nature. You're alive in God, in Christ. Now watch this. I got to shut down. I got to shut down. Verse 16. Because of all of this, let us boldly come before the throne of grace. Oh. If you ever wondered whether or not you were worthy to be in God's presence, you're worthy 
because there's blood on that mercy seat. When you approach God, there's a trail of blood because somebody's been there before you and his name is Jesus. When you get before the throne of God's glory and before the throne of his grace, you find the blood of Jesus there already. We find blood on heaven's mercy seat. We can come boldly before the throne. And what do we do when we get there? We find blood. And what does the scripture say we do? We may obtain mercy. How many of you need more mercy in your life? And we find grace to help in time of need. These are two different things. Mercy is the forgiveness aspect of God. His blood cries out mercy. Whenever I need to be forgiven, I just lean back on the mercy of God. His mercies are new every morning. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Grace is the enablement of God, the empowerment of God to do the things he's called us to do. So when you and I approach the throne of God, this is what we're to do. We're to obtain mercy. Mercy is something that has to be obtained. You have to obtain it by faith. It's a transaction. Grace is not a transaction. Grace is the richness of God that you discover in his throne. Mercy is obtained. Grace is found. I used to quote the scripture wrong all the time. That we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. He doesn't say you obtain grace. You can't obtain grace. You can't earn grace. That's the whole point of grace. It can't be obtained. It has to be given. So you and I, you want to get more grace in your life? Spend more time in the throne room. You'll find it there. Can you, can you imagine? It, it, this will change your quiet time forever. You'll go to God in the morning and you'll be praying and here you are in the throne room and boy, look, look, look what you see. You see the, the mercy seat and there you see the living blood of Jesus which cries out mercy and you say, I obtained that mercy by faith. I believe that that blood was for me and you obtain mercy and before you leave, you turn and you find some grace there. Oh Lord, I'll take this grace with me because I need it to fulfill the call that you put on my life. I obtain mercy and I find grace. Why? Because Jesus was a better high priest. He's the mega high priest. There's been a lot that came before him. There's been some that came after him. None can compare to him. Let's stand up to our feet. We hope that this message inspired you and filled your heart with faith. If you would like to visit our church, check out www.highcountrychristian.com for service times and location information. Thanks again for listening to this audio presentation from High Country Christian Church, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.